0: Love, Hope, Radio.
1: Good evening, I'm Marianne Russo, and along with Elise Butowski, Jane Hotfett, and Pierrette Dia Tremont, we are the Coffee Clutch. Tonight my co-moderator is Chuck Wally, who will be moderating on our Twitter tweet chat. Dr. Armstrong will be taking your calls later in the show, and I will give you the call in number when we're ready to take the calls. Um, Tonight, we have our tweet chat open using our hashtag TCK for you to interact with others and pose questions that you may have for Dr. Armstrong should you prefer not to call in. So, I know I have been gushing about this book for the past two days, but trust me when I tell you that neurodiversity is a must. This book is just fantastic for anyone dealing with any mental illness, whether it be for themselves as an adult or a child. neurodiversity really revolutionizes the way we look at mental illness in a very uplifting, realistic, and really compassionate way. Um, Let me just give you a quick taste of a little bit from the book. Instead of pretending there is hidden away in a vault somewhere a perfectly normal brain to which all brains must be compared, we need to admit that there is no standard brain, just as there is no standard flower or standard culture or racial group and that, in fact, diversity among brains is just as wonderfully enriching as biodiversity and the diversity among cultures and races. That's from the introduction from this book. Um, Let me introduce Dr. Thomas Armstrong, an award-winning author and speaker. Welcome, Dr. Armstrong. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: Well, what I, as I said before, what I really love about this book is your ability to find the positive perspective on these neuropsychological disorders without, you know, romancing them. Right. So, you know, I'd really like to really just jump right into it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your view of neurodiversity and what you call our disability culture?
0: Sure. Um, well, when I talk about our disability culture, I'm really talking about how, um, decade after decade we've seen more and more disabilities added to the uh, to the list of of what people um suffer from uh the diagnostic and statistical manual that originally came out about 40 50 years ago had about 100 disorders the latest the DSM4 has about 300 and they're talking about adding a number of other disabilities uh as well in the DSM5 And what I'm suggesting is that we've become a disability culture. We've been focused on the negative side of uh, psychoneurological conditions. And that certainly is part of the story. But there is also a positive side for many of these uh, neuropsychological conditions that have been neglected. And those, I feel, are addressed in the concept of neurodiversity, which doesn't talk about negative or positive. It simply talks about differences, So I'm suggesting that with respect to some of these um, brain differences like autism or ADHD or dyslexia, um, they are, in fact, brain differences. We know there's enough research out now suggesting that there are differences in the brains of individuals with these disorders um, and genetic, along with environmental uh, interactions that go on. Um, And I'm just feeling that instead of... um, simply talking deficit 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 all the time we um make room for uh at least a space for the positive side of these psychological conditions
1: you know and I, I as i say i learned so much um from this show probably more than even my followers because you know that's something that was told to me by someone um early on when i was doing this that you know that you really have to look at the gift that you know right. every disorder has a gift and when i really started talking to my child about that it just made a huge difference in her yeah so,
0: um i worked in uh special ed classes for many years and that's really where i started to feel um discouraged and frustrated by the constant emphasis in iep meetings and elsewhere on the negatives, negatives of these kids i was thinking that if you have a um condition that has a negative stigma attached to it, what you need more than anything else is to be surrounded by adults who see the best in you. And so they, they should really be investigating your strengths, even as they diagnose your weaknesses.
1: And you know your book really, you know, as far as the IEPs um, and education, special education, which we'll get into later. You know, it's funny because I told my husband, I said, after reading this book, I am so prepared for that IEP meeting next week. You know, it that's just great. really gives you a great, um, you know, a different way of looking at it than I think most of us have gone into our IEP meetings. So, um, right. you know, that's a, that's another great feature about this book. Um, you know, the book starts with eight principles of neurodiversity, and the the idea of niche construction, which is essentially creating a suitable lifestyle.
0: Yeah. So
1: um, I don't know which would be better. Should we start with reading off the principles? I can give you the principle, or first would you like to explain to us how someone would actually find their niche?
0: Um, why don't we start with the principles and then go off from there to the uh, to the niche?
1: Okay. So principle one is the human brain works more like an ecosystem than a machine.
0: Right. Most of the models that we've been given about the brain, um, compare it to a machine or to the cockpit of a jet airplane or to an, uh, what's under the hood of an auto or to a computer. And all of these metaphors, um, may have their uses and yet they don't fully reflect the miracle of the brain. I mean, it's a complex, um, trillion, uh, cell connections. Uh, and it's more like a brain forest. I like I like that term. It happens to work here. Uh, a brain forest uh, with lots of diversity in it, and so it makes sense to, to use an ecological metaphor like neurodiversity to talk about what's going on in our brain forest.
1: Right. And, you know, I think that anybody that has a child where, you know, when you say comorbidity, um, you know, that's this applies too because no two kids are the same and you, they really have to be looking you know looked at very differently.
0: Right, comorbidity I think is the attempt to try to come to grips with the fact that each child is unique, um, and it it goes only so far because uh, well even the term comorbidity has a sort of a morbid quality to it.
1: I call it potpourri. <laughs>
0: right a potpourri i like that
1: <laughs> that's what i choose to use but um okay so moving on to the second um the second principle which is human beings and human brains exist along continuance continuums of competence
0: yes um i think the idea of the continuum is very uh congruent with the idea of the spectrum when we talk about the, being on the spectrum uh exactly. we're talking about this continuum and if we take any number of human qualities like sociability, um, literacy, intelligence, um, rationality, et cetera, we will all find that we're at some stage or some place along a continuum of, you know, highly developed or underdeveloped in those areas. And I think realizing, you know, that we all are, let's say, in terms of literacy, some of us uh, have a real difficulty with words and would be considered dyslexic. Other people, um, you know, are slow readers, but don't consider them dyslexic, themselves dyslexic. Um, other people um, are average readers. Some people are super readers. Some people are Shakespeare. I mean, one person is Shakespeare. So what I'm suggesting is we're all in a continuum on the way to Shakespeare, essentially. Um, and I and I point the arrow in the positive direction rather than in the negative direction.
1: Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, like autism is, you know, considered a spectrum and a continuum. I think that, you know, like you said, with the changes to the DSM, you know, five where there are just going to be so many different new labels um, applied that really, you know, I think someday this is going to wind up, mental illness is going to be a continuum also, you know.
0: Yes, exactly so. so. I think so. That would be an interesting thing to see.
1: Wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, the third principle is human competence is defined by the values of the culture to which you belong, which I found really interesting.
0: Yes. Um, we define our um, definitions of deviance in part by, or maybe even largely due to the social values that we hold. So, for example, um, each of these um, Disorders that I talk about or brain conditions that I talk about in the book seem to violate um, a social value that we have. Autism violates the value that we expect people to be sociable. Um, ADHD violates the Protestant work ethic, the idea that you should be willing to delay gratification. Um, Anxiety um, violates the value of tranquility that we hold up uh, in esteem. Uh, Dyslexia violates the ideal or the value that every child should read or that everyone should be literate uh schizophrenia which i talk about in the book violates the value of rationality we expect everybody should be uh, uh, everyone should be rational and i'm not defending this uh schizophrenia it's a terrible disease but i'm suggesting that you know one of the ways that we which we define it um is through uh the violation of you know rationality
1: And, you know, culturally, the cultural differences, are are mental illnesses accepted differently, you know, in different cultures?
0: Yes, they are. Um, There have been a number of studies. One study um, gave a video of a child to four different psychiatrists from four different cultures, and the psychiatrists from the more restrictive cultures were more likely to see ADHD in the child. That's just one example uh, among many of how there is, there is a cultural relativity, although it seems to be that we are import, exporting rather, our, um, our model of uh, deficit-oriented uh, approaches to neuropsychological conditions. Um, there was a book that came out recently called Crazy Like Us that um, documented in a very interesting way how our model, the Western model, the United States model of psychiatry has affected other cultures and, and really talks about that in great detail.
1: You yeah, that's very interesting that we find um, on our show, too, is that, you know, from time to time we get people from, you know, Europe or, you know, wherever. And, um, you know, the way that they, you know, educate the children, I mean, they, they really don't have inclusion. Um, and the different programs that they have, I mean, in some ways, I think that they're way ahead of us, and in other ways, you know, they, they really just really um, isolate the children. But it was interesting that, you know, like, say, in Germany they have, um, play dates in parks for these kids where they have psychologists in the park that work and help well, these kids with social skills.
0: That has a nice you know. ring to it, psychologists in the park.
1: <laughs> right. But, <laughs> well, you know, it's just interesting how different, you know, cultures, you know, deal with it differently.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: And that you know, sort of that's leads that's to the that's next
0: uh, next that's uh, principle. Just to say
1: that leads us to principle four where whether you are regarded as disabled or gifted depends largely on when and where you were born.
0: Yes. um, One of the examples I give is um, if an individual who in our culture would would be labeled ADHD were growing up in the Pulauac culture in the South Sea Islands, where the ability to pay attention to a lot of things as you're navigating from one island to the next has high cultural value, they would be the gifted ones in that culture. And there are a lot of us who... Um, do well you know in terms of focusing attention but we can't find our cars in large shopping malls and if we were growing up in a culture like that one we would be the disabled ones you know we would be not uh, they they, they use constellations to help you know reckoning and so some of us would be diagnosed with CDD constellation deficit disorder Um, and so that's just you know an interesting thing to to reflect on how for example another example historically um, 100, 150 years ago, we didn't expect every child to read in our culture. Um, we lived in a more agrarian culture where the ability to, um, build a barn and, uh, and milk a cow had, you know, were the, that was the order of the day. Uh, so reading had less, um, importance. So they didn't have dyslexia, essentially, back then. We invented dyslexia as the importance of reading became, uh, paramount in our culture.
1: Right, and um, by the way, don't mention the constellation disorder because it will wind up in the (laughs) (laughs) DSM-5. That's all we need. Um, Well, you know what, getting back to the DSM-5, I mean, you know, I really am torn as to whether the addition of these, um, you know, new diagnoses is actually going to help as far as accommodations or whether, you know, it's going to be overwhelming for the districts. I mean, what is your opinion on that? Well,
0: um, I, I agree with Alan Francis, who's been uh, doing a lot of blogging on, uh, at a place called the Psychiatric Times on the net. He was the chairman of the dsm 4 and he's been suggesting that they are listing so many uh, disorders that have vague parameters around them that he's afraid that millions of people are going to end up with diagnoses who otherwise would be considered normal and what would happen then? Once a, dis- once a disorder gets um, certified, then all the drug companies begin marshaling drugs that will treat it. And okay. there's the you know the danger of people taking medications that have uh, you know dangerous side effects who don't actually need them. And so there's that you know that fear, I guess, that it will become too inclusive. You know, on the I think I agree with you. On the one hand, it's good that they're being inclusive because they're they're noticing a lot of differences, but the fact that there are high stakes with this inclusiveness and, and generally negative high stakes suggests that um they may be rushing into territory that they're not prepared for
1: and you know i I have you know so, so you know I have children, my concern is um them using adult criteria. Um for, for diagnoses in children, as has been done in the past for children with salient bipolar disorder um you know that yes. children may have very different presentations and um yes, you know, exactly. that's a too. i mean let's face it, we need the d s m you know we need to have um a model, so you know let's just hope that this is gonna be positive and that this is gonna help children with their accommodations and you know their other needs and services, yeah exactly um going on to principle five success in life is based on adapting one's brains to the needs of the surrounding environment
0: yes that's this is my reality check principle because I'm really talking about how um, you know even though uh, disorders are culturally relative historically relative at the same time we're preparing children and adults to live in a society that isn't 150 years ago that isn't in the South Sea Islands that does value you know paying focused attention on something that does involve literacy, that does involve the need to be sociable. So I'm a realist in the sense that I recognize that um, to be successful, you do have to work on these things. So I'm not saying, and, and this is important for the neurodiversity movement in the autism community, I'm not saying let's just accept anybody who's autistic you know, as who they are, celebrate them, and not bother to change them at all. And that's that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm suggesting that we need to uh, engage in early intervention programs for people um, with autism so that they um, have the opportunity to develop the social skills that they need in order to be successful in our culture. So that, you know, same thing with the dyslexic. I'm not saying let's just leave the dyslexic alone and let them, you know, watch TV and uh, look at pictures all day. there's a need to be literate in our culture. And so learning how to read is an important adaptive uh, approach to uh, working with their uh, condition.
1: Well, you know, I hope everyone does read this book because you make it very clear that, you know, you are not romanticizing this and that um, I think you even state that you do not exonerate, um, you know, people with autism um, for, you know, with social responsibility. Um, you know, it's, just, it's really an adaptive from, from, you know, when I was reading it, it really is just adaptive. And it's not so much that the you have to adapt to the world or that the world has to change and adapt to you. It's just finding the niche, which we'll get to.
0: Um, well, yes. In a sense, I'm saying both things that you have to adapt to the world, and the world has to adapt to you. When I say the world has to adapt to you, that really brings us into the next principle on on niche construction. Um, okay,
1: that's principle six, right?
0: Yes. Success yes.
1: in life also depends on modifying your surrounding environment to fit the needs of your unique brain. Now yes,
0: this is, that's, this
1: is this is this is an important one.
0: Right. This is what I call niche construction. Um, So I'm suggesting on the one hand, we do need to adapt to the world. That's important. We need to learn how to read. We need to be sociable. But I'm suggesting that if that's all we do, we're going to give ourselves away entirely and not value who we are and our unique brains. So I'm suggesting that in addition to adapting to the world, we need to spend time making the world adapt to us. And that's what I mean by niche construction. Um Being able to create environments within which many cultures essentially in, in which individuals can shine where, where their gifts are going to be noted and recognized and utilized rather than being in an environment where you know the the worst possibility you know for um, w- their functioning is is um, in place. you know one example I give is of a person with ADHD, an adult with ADHD. Um, a really good na- niche would be one that involves novelty and activity and, um, speed uh, change. Um, one of the, wor- so for example, like an itinerant photographer, I had some video people coming in today, um, wor- working on a video shoot and, uh, I think a job like that where they go from job to job would be really tailor-made for somebody with ADHD, lots of details to pay attention to, um. On the other hand, a job in a nine-to-five desk position you know, in a corporation would be one of the worst niches for them, because they'd right. have to sit still all day and it would drive them mad. So there's good niche, what I call niche or niche construction and poor niche construction. And it depends, you know we have control over at least some aspects of what that environment is going to look like.
1: You know, and but my my thinking on it was in our present um, society, where there still is the stigma of you know a conformity and and what is you know quote normal. Um, how do you begin to apply these tools that you give to create this niche
0: for yourself? Well, that kind of leads to the next um, principle. If you want to read that one,
1: okay. Uh, principle seven is niche construction includes career and lifestyle choices, assistive technologies, human resources, and other life enhancing strategies tailored to the specific needs of the neurodiverse individual
0: right so i 'm being real specific about you know concrete things that we can do to create a, a niche not just it 's not just a general create a positive environment but it 's uh, find an individual uh, mentor or a um, Shadow or an individual who can really hook into your child or your uh, the adult's uh, strengths, use assistive technologies like um, text to speech software so that someone with dyslexia uh, severe dyslexia can scan printed text and have it read out loud um, so that the the world comes to them in that way they don't ha- i'm not saying that they don't have to read, but this brings the world to them without them mm-hmm. having to struggle um, all the time um so bringing in people choosing careers uh like i said earlier being in a job that makes the most of who you are rather than uh one that uh draws upon your weaknesses and causes frustration and discouragement um all of these things taken together including you know other strategies that you can develop uh uh To work with uh, specific needs, all of these constitute taken together um, the niche that I'm talking about. Um, And I'm suggesting that we need to be creative as we go along to try to put together. For each person, it's going to be a different niche. It's going to be a different combination of people, tools, strategies, and so forth. Um, But at least, you know, I'm showing a kind of a roadmap of uh, how you can get there.
1: Right, and, you know, the the assistive technology is, like, so key. You know, I've recently learned about assistive technology, and we've been fortunate to have um, some guests on, um, like, from Simon Technologies. And it really, I mean, the difference that it makes in the quality of life is amazing. Uh, You know, one thing I would like to to see um, as far as the kids, which sort of, I think, fits into, um, you know, what we're talking about with the niche, you know, indirectly, but, you know, I would love to see classrooms set up where the classes are set up by teaching style versus level of, you know, academic grades. You know, I think that... That would be great because, you know, like when Temple Grandin was on the show, she was speaking of the, you know, the autistic brain, the Asperger's brain, how there are, you know, pattern thinkers and visual thinkers and how they need to be taught differently and they need different
0: subjects to be taught.
1: And, you know, that I think also would help with um, what you're saying here with the niche, you know, it's for the children at any rate.
0: Right. Yeah. I've been a strong advocate of multiple intelligences theory over the years. Um, I've worked with oh, maybe 100,000 teachers over the years um, and written five books. And I really um, suggest and encourage teachers to teach a different way, you know, every day, a different strategy, different style of presentation so that over the period of a day or two or three, um, everybody's going to have their strength addressed or their particular learning style addressed. And at the same time, people are not just going to get it all the way they want it, but they're also going to be challenged in areas that are difficult for them. I think you need to do both, really.
1: All right. Well, it looks like I'm going to be ordering a few more of your books.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's good You know, I, I also, you know, I don't know if this even is available. When they when they screen um, young children, um, say kindergarten, first grade, or whatever, do they screen for different learning styles, or are they just looking for learning disabilities? Do you know?
0: Well, in general. In general, the kind of screening tests that are used are used for sorting purposes, to put in disability categories, to put in different reading groups, different ability levels. So there's very very little out there that can actually screen for multiple intelligences or learning styles. I mean, there are instruments out there. There's something called the TEAL Inventory of Multiple Intelligences that you can use with young kids. But um, I don't hear it being used as a you know mass-market screening device for kids. And yet it should be. We should find out early on how kids learn and provide them with the kinds of teaching strategies, teaching styles that will work for them.
1: Well, all of this that we just discussed really brings us to principle eight, which is the positive niche construction directly modifies the brain, which in turn enhances its ability to adapt to its environment.
0: I mean, that's
1: what we're all looking for.
0: (laughs) right it's creating an enriched environment i mean we know this through studies that were done 30 40 years ago with rats that were put in some were put in impoverished environments some were put in enriched environments and the ones with in the enriched environments had more uh... richer dendrites uh, systems the more connections between brain cells so we know it for a fact that when you create a stimulating activity you're actually helping to you know uh, create new connections in the brain. And as kids develop more competence and develop these connections, um, they're going to be better able to adapt to the world around them.
1: And I would assume for adults also. Because
0: yeah, it's books incredible books. what the brain is capable of. There's another uh, book out called The Brain That Changes Itself, which is really pretty amazing. It's very popular now. And it suggests that, you know, we, we've underestimated, what the brain can actually do in terms of responding to um, specific kinds of curricula, specific kinds of interventions, it can really change literally uh, into um, a more effective brain.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, I see it in, in my daughter when, you know, it's just all positivity. And, you know, I'm not saying, oh, it's a beautiful rainbow, but when everything is, you know, positive and you look for the brighter side of things, so you definitely see a change in, you know, all aspects. So, um you know what I wanted to start doing because this there's just so much information for us to get out is to you really define each disorder and I mean you you take I, I'd say the more um, common found disorders um, and you you give the positive side the probably the best niche fit. For that, um, what type of assistive technology, and what research is telling us for that specific disorder. So, why don't we take them one at a time and we okay. can apply these principles and you can give us um, tools for the different disorders. So, let's start with autism. What is the positive side and what niche and assistive technology works well for these children?
0: Well, um, for autism, uh, Gifts of autism include, um, as you mentioned, Temple Grandin saying, um, pattern seeking, um, detail, very good detail-oriented individuals. Um, They use—it's funny because they use the term. Researchers have used the term weak central coherence, which is suggesting that they have difficulty with holes or with gestalts. Um, But at the same time, another way of putting this that I suggested is strong local analysis. They're able to take details that others would neglect and, and home in on them. Uh, they're where, where's Waldo experts. They do well on tests that involve finding patterns inside of patterns, um, you know, very detailed. Sometimes they uh, do this with music, too. They can disembed musical chords and sometimes have musical pitch. They're also systematizers. They're very good at um understanding the workings of a system, whether it's a, uh, it could be a mathematical system, it could be a computer program, uh, it could be the workings of a fan. You know, some kids enjoy just staring at a fan for several hours because they're they're engaged with the system, the mechanical system of a fan. So these are some of the, the gifts of, of autism. And so providing an environment where they have an opportunity to, um, to, to, uh, Pay attention to details. Campbell um, Grandin gave a, a couple of examples of poor and and good niche construction. She said uh, a poor job would be a, a job as a taxi dispatcher because they would have all these social connections that they had to um, keep track of. And she said, on the other hand, a taxi driver might be a really good position because they w- w- would possibly have a very good map you know that's a system a map of the city and be able to you know find specific details be able to get people to those specific places so um you know that's um that's a little bit about the the career the system technology some some of them that are being developed um relate to uh, recognizing software that helps people recognize social cues It helps them actually adapt to the social world by understanding facial, you know, what does a smile look like? What does a frown look like? What does that mean? What is the person feeling if they have this particular um, expression on their face? And the software is getting more and more sophisticated um, as far as um, what we're learning um, in terms of uh, teaching those uh, subverbal kinds of things that go on all the time between people. You I
1: find that also, you know, you were talking about detail-oriented. I know, like for my child, I mean, we can be watching a movie and she picks up things and sees things that, you know, most people would never see. You know, and, and we have to rewind it and we're like, wow, you know, it's amazing. So, and, exactly. You know, so, you know, I think they pick up on it, even in, in reading. I mean, I think they when they're reading something, um, you know, they're so detail-oriented that they get so much more out of things. So you know, really fostering the interests, and like you said, I mean, just looking at the, you know, the gifts and and being a positive. Um,
0: yes, some re- researchers at um, 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 let's see, I think it's at Harvard have been involved in um helping kids uh, seeing kids' brains in terms of enhanced perceptual functioning. They've been using this term a lot as an advantage for autism as well. They've been also noticed that if they give a different intelligence test, the Raven's Progressive Matrices is the name of the test, they can actually get a better IQ score, a higher IQ score, 30 to 70 points higher. For a child who's been labeled, you know, a, a child with autism who may have been labeled also with intellectual disabilities because of a low IQ, they can actually raise these IQ scores using this alternative approach that relies more on this enhanced perceptual uh, functioning. And so um, a lot of the kids that we call low-functioning autistic um, may in the future uh, being tested in a you know with this alternative test may actually be raised out of that category into a realm of higher functioning which is i think an important implication for a lot of parents um who are concerned about their kids um and and dealing with the uh issue of low functioning
1: and and, and you know like you um, basically say in the book i mean you know if if you if you take the gift and you nurture it you know, it changes the whole world.
0: So exactly,
1: you know, it change, exactly, it, change, it could change a child's whole world. Instead of being upset about the child being hyper focused, you know, foster it, and you know, it right. could lead to um, Silicon Valley. You know, <laughs> well, that
0: you mentioned hyper focus, and that kind of brings us into ADHD.
1: That's where because
0: I was going. <laughs> people with ADHD, in fact, one of the things that they're good at is focusing on something for hours at a time and that gets put in a negative um, by the ADHD community that, and by calling it hyper-focus. That's supposed to be one of the negative warning signs. Right. And yet, if you think about it, being absorbed in a topic is not a negative thing. Um, it, in fact, Maria Montessori talked about it as being the best, the, sort of the peak experience in learning when kids get absorbed, you know, and sh- she didn't have 45-minute periods in her Montessori school. She let kids spend hours, if they wanted to, working on her materials. So this idea of hyper-focus is very important. Um, And one, uh, you know, it's a. there's actually two different kinds of um, focuses or two different kinds of attention that people with ADHD are actually good at. One is this hyper-focus or what I call homing attention, and the other is called roaming attention. They've got this uh, ability to pay attention to a lot of different things at one time. They're sitting in the... um, classroom, and they're listening to the teacher's voice, well, um, the non-ADHD person is going to be able to focus in on the voice, whereas the uh, ADHD person is going to listen to the voice, they're going to listen to what the kids are saying in the back, they're going to listen to the sounds that are going outside, they're going to listen to what's going on in the hallway, they're paying attention to all these things. Now, that's a disadvantage in the classroom when you want people to listen to the sounds, you know, the lecturing of the teacher. Um, But it's an advantage if you were to put yourself in a, uh, you know, look at it from an evolutionary point of view. Go back to the um, prehistoric times and think about who um, evolution would favor. Would it be the uh, individual who was hyper-focused on something for like eight hours or would it be the person who's constantly on on alert for, you know, food uh, or, you know, staying away from uh, uh, large animals and that kind of thing? You'd want to have more of that roaming attention um rather than this focused attention so um, i
1: like that i like that roaming attention much better than distracted because you know when i think of adhd i think of adhd as a child who is so highly distractible that they cannot focus on anything so this is a whole different view of it from what i read
0: right i mean in a sense they're not focusing on anything they're focusing on everything right
1: um
0: there's a there's a place for that i mean they're like I say, there are jobs that seem to uh, favor being in that kind of uh, place. I, I notice when I do um, radio interviews and, and TV interviews, people in the media uh, have to pay attention to all sorts of things. Lots of details that uh, come up again, you know, in a very quick succession uh, of time. And I notice that a lot of them will talk about, yeah, when I was in school, I had difficulty. They said I was hyperactive but they're now they're in a job that makes the most of what they're, who they are and what they're doing, and they're, they're in their niche, really.
1: So they're good multitaskers, then.
0: Exactly. Multitasking is sort of what they're saying is the wave of the future, you know, being able to do that um, more effectively, and people with ADHD already do that well, so they may be the, the pioneers, you know, the uh, individuals who are paving the way for the rest of us.
1: Well, this is then that's different than say picture-in-picture, picture, which is what we call it, where a child can be um, sort of in, you know, their other world. I guess this would more pertain to autism, where they could be off thinking about something else, but yet when the teacher asks a question, they're the first one to raise their hand. So I guess that's very different. Type of well, it, it, it
0: can, and it just depends on the individual. I think um, some kids have this ability to wander and at the same time still pay attention. Other kids find what the it, – it, it obviously depends on what the teacher is saying, too. The te- if the teacher is boring, one of the things that ADHD people have the hardest time with are things that are boring. Um, and is that such a bad thing? I mean, in a sense, a- people with ADHD could be considered our quality control engineers – you know if they start wandering their attention you know that the environment isn't providing enough stimulation and something needs to be done but it's very uh conservative to say well the classrooms are okay it's okay to lecture all the time it's okay to have kids spend all their time doing worksheets and if they have problems with it then they have this disease called ADHD that's that's unrealistic you know that's that's where you're making kids adapt to a, a world or an environment that's too restrictive that doesn't really that isn't really good for all any kid right. um let alone those you know with labels
1: Right you know and yeah you
0: know, like you said they they're
1: just they're all individuals, and there are so many positives. I mean, you know when you think about it, I mean, talk about when i when I got to the section on mood disorders, you know the first thing I thought of is, you know, wow, he's going to have a hard time convincing me that there's an upside to you know depression and mania, but I mean, right. you found it, um so why don't you go into that? The mood sure.
0: disorders well, the mood disorders was one of the most challenging for me because I have a mood disorder. And while I was writing the book, I had a uh, resurgence of a depression that, you know, I've had about five episodes of depression in my life, and I you know had my fifth one during the writing of this most of the book. So it was really difficult to be depressed and to talk about the positive side of depression. And yet it probably was a good thing for me to, you know, think of the positives. That's what somebody who's depressed is supposed to be doing is thinking of the positive side of things, you know, because there's a tendency to call up all the negatives. So as I explored this, I found that there was a link between depression, and I talked about both depression and bipolar in this chapter, manic depressive illness as well as unipolar depression. And I found links in both cases with um, creative individuals, particularly individuals in the humanities and the arts, in writing, there were studies that have been done of writers uh, and of eminent people in the arts suggesting that um, many of them suffered from either depression or bipolar disorder. I mean, you um, really
1: do see so much of that.
0: Yes, in, exactly. In, in
1: adults and even in children, you know, a lot of these children that, um, you know, have such mood instability are just so gifted in, you know, art or music. I mean, there definitely seems to be a correlation. Why? Why do you think that is?
0: well for bipolar it's easier to see because um bipolar has the manic side and the depressive side and when people are in their manic side they're full of energy full of optimism full of creativity full of ideas and uh this can be a very very productive period for them um and then the depressive side less so um and that might be a you know a resting point for them but in many cases, it's not. It's, a, it's just a plunge into the negative. But I'm suge- su- suggesting the book that um, from an evolutionary point of view, it might be that the manic side uh, of bipolar disorder enabled uh, individuals when they're in mania to um, you know, be especially good foragers for food or hunters and uh, good procreators during that time as well. So they'd be passing their genes on to the next uh, generation. Depression itself, unipolar depression, is a little bit more difficult to understand. Um, There's something about, one one of the things that people who are depressed do is ruminate. Um, They think about all sorts of negative things. This could go wrong. That went wrong. I'm no good at this. I was never any good at that. Um, So they're constantly, their mind is constantly turning over and turning over and turning over things. And that's, similar in a sense to the process that writers use because writers are constantly in their mind going over things, not necessarily negative things. They're talking about how is this character going to be in my next chapter? Uh, What are they going to do? What obstacles are are they going to face? What uh, new elements am I going to bring in? So this rumination kind of function might be um, to some extent um, uh, an advantage uh, in terms of writing in terms of coming up with new ideas. But as far as um, experiencing it, you know, as a negative, it definitely is not a, um, a good thing. It's hard to romanticize the, the, the real negative parts of depression, even as we understand why it may be around.
1: I mean, I mean, I know for myself, even, you know, situational depression, I had lost a child and I was, you know, very, very depressed.
0: Yes, and, of course. And, you know,
1: what I had found was that you know, through the depression and through the sorrow, you really well, when I came, you know, out of it, there was really such an appreciation. Yes. So, you know, there can be a positive that comes out of, you know, real sorrow.
0: Right. In fact I in the in the chapter I talk about two different kinds of depression. Um this is based on a, a woman named Emmy Gutt who's a psychoanalyst, and she talks about progr- productive depression and non productive depression. And I think that's a good distinction to use because some people go through depression and they come out the other side transformed in some way or having solved a problem and uh, other people don't. Other people just keep getting worse or having chronic depression and then some uh, regrettably um, commit suicide. And obviously in, in that sort of case, there's no no positive there. Right.
1: And, you know, really we had a... A special on a few, I guess, a week or so ago, where we had um, AFSP and uh, uh, National Suicide um, Lifeline, and you know, it is, it is a serious problem, and it's common among children and teens, and um, you know, let's, yeah. I, I could see how the tools that you have and the the. The program that you have in this book really could help so many people because it really makes you look at your life differently and it makes your caregivers look at you differently. And hopefully when, you know, neurodiversity really gets its due, everybody will look at it differently, so... Yes um, let you know, I think we're headed in the right direction. um, let's jump over to anxiety because I do want to get a few questions in if we can so sure. what it what are what are the gifts or the upside of anxiety and um what niche and or careers work well for them
0: yes well that that was another difficult one for me because I have anxiety disorders. I had the hardest time with the two disorders that I have um because it's you know hard to see yourself. Or look at it from an objective point of view, and I kept injecting my own personal biases. You know, saying there's nothing good with about anxiety, and to some extent, that's true. Um, anxiety um, can be a you know a negative, but there's an evolutionary reason why we're anxious, and it's there's a good reason why 15% of the population, larger than any other mental illness, has uh, some form of anxiety disorder. And that's because when we were in primitive times, um, it was probably the anxious people who were the first ones to get out of the way of, you know, a, a thundering herd of mastodons, um, were the first to put themselves into pr- a protective space where they couldn't be harmed. Because in prehistoric times, it was a dangerous world out there. Um, the problem is we we still have those genes that enabled us to survive, but there are no longer any mastodons around um yet it's at the same time there's some uh studies that have been done one that i cited in the book suggesting that young adults who have anxiety um disorders are more likely to um they have a longer life expectancy than those without anxiety disorders which was kind of interesting you know suggesting that they were anxious and they took protective measures um and prevented medicine and that kind of thing uh, and they were more likely to be cautious and avoid accidents, which is one of the leading killers of young adults, mm-hmm. so to some extent, you know there 's that kind of advantage um, there's is the advantage of having fear when there 's really uh, a threat around um, you, you, you don 't want to be in a position where you know a, a, a car is coming toward you, and you say oh there 's nothing to be <laughs> anxious about I and mean, that 's one of the difficulties with people on drugs like l s d for example. Is that they'll um, be up on the sixth story of a uh, of a building? I, I noticed uh, Art Linkletter died today, and uh, his daughter apparently threw herself off a off the a, um, a sixth floor uh, building while on LSD. And I had that experience when I was uh, I I only took LSD once in adolescence, but I had a horrible trip. And while I was on the eighth floor of the mental hospital that I went to, uh, that they put me in. I had the feeling that I could easily float um, if, I, if I let myself down uh, from the window. And I had absolutely no fear uh, of any of these things. And it was like, that's very dangerous. That's more dangerous than having anxiety. It's better to have the anxiety and be aware of things, uh, of possible dangers, than to have absolutely no... It's like pain. We've got to be able to feel pain so that we won't put our hands for half an hour on the hot gas. Uh, so that we'll know to pull ourselves away. So that's right. the way in which I envision some of the um, positives of anxiety. lot yeah, you know, much anxiety ob- obviously gets in the way. and It was hard for me to think of um, any good careers uh, that went with people with anxiety disorders. Um, there, I could think of a lot of careers that wouldn't work for them, like uh, I wouldn't want a air traffic controller or a pilot with an anxiety disorder, no. you know, especially a fear of flying kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean,
1: anxiety is, is very different, I think, than um, as career-wise. I think that it's very different um, from all of the other um, disorders that we spoke about because it's just very different in nature. You know, yeah. so, I mean, anxiety is everywhere. You, that Anxiety is something that you can get in any situation. So I could see how exactly. that could be more difficult, but I could also see how the OCD brain could be a positive. You know, even yes, though, I, I mean I know you refer to it as brain lock. A lot of us on uh, my show call it the sticky brain. Um but you know, there there are a lot of, you know, brilliant surgeons and attorneys and, you know, very bright people that have O C D and that O
0: C D drives them in their careers. Yes, so I agree. yeah, my dad was a pediatrician who was uh, O C D and uh, I think that, you know, the whole issue of cleanliness and following procedures and attention to um, detail and all that—the kind of a rigid rig- uh, ritual—you uh, didn't want to leave out any steps when you were getting ready to uh, uh, to operate on somebody. All those things are very good and become advantages. I even suggested in the book that maybe the rich, ritual priests of um, you know earlier times were the OCD individuals um, who you know had to perform these uh, rituals, sacrificial rituals with precision, otherwise the whole ritual had to be repeated all over again.
1: Um, okay, I'm just looking at the time here. We're going to take a few calls in a few minutes. If anybody would like to call in, Chuck, if you could um, post the number, if you can tweet the number to everyone so they can call in, I'll be looking for your calls. Um, before we do that, if we, I would really like for you to discuss your take on um, really having a productive IEP meeting because, I mean, that really struck me. The way that I think most parents, teachers, and, you know, um, special education uh, people look at it is very, very different from the way that you look at it and the way that you dealt with it, and you have been to many, many, many IEPs. So tell us what what your take is and how your approach
0: works. Well, I'll tell you what I used to do. Uh, I used to go, when I was an educational consultant, into school districts um, and – Sit in on the IEP meetings, and before the meeting, um, a couple weeks before, I'd ask uh, to have them send me the cumulative file of the of the child that would have all the test scores, all the teacher comments, all the forms, etc. And what I do with this file, and usually for kids, these were kids with you know real problems, they'd be fairly thick files. What I do is I'd read through the entire file and I had a copy of it, and I would highlight with a yellow highlighter anything positive that was said about the child. And so if I had a 100- or 200-page uh, CUME file, I would be maybe come up with two or three pages of positive things. What I would do was uh, would be then I would type up all the positive stuff on the two or three pages, and at the beginning of the IEP meeting, I'd hand them out. And oftentimes the first instinct was this can't be this child because i know this child is difficult troubling you know troublesome to other people and you're saying all these positive things and i you know point out these aren't what i said these are things called from you know the the past of this child um oftentimes the kindergarten teacher was the best source even for a high school student you know they'd say things like loves to move to music loves to finger paint that kind of thing and then you'd see um negative you know Comments for the rest of their school career, uh, so we'd have to go back to you know various test scores and, and and teacher comments. And I find though that once people started to kind of tune into what I was doing and thinking about the child in terms of positives, something would change. Usually, IET meetings have a kind of a, in my my experience, have uh, along with the bureaucratic uh, aspect of it, have a sort of a cloud over them where you're sort of there to talk about the negatives of the child so that everything gets plugged into that negative um, think- style of thinking. What you do if you begin the IEP meeting by focusing on all these positive things that were drawn from the Q <laughs> file is get people into thinking. And I found that people would say, now that you mention it, you're right. You know, my son does love music and, and uh, plays a guitar and teaches kids, other kids to play guitar. And this may be a child that you know has had you know all sorts of suspensions and referrals, but now you begin to see that in one context or in one niche they they perform really well. Uh, so I you know I I, I tell teachers um, to document when they see a child doing something right, when they see a child doing something real really positive, get a document of it, get a picture, a video, make a notation in a diary. Same thing for the parents at home. That way, uh, when you meet for a parent-teacher conference, you can begin by sharing the positives about the child before you get into specifics about, you know, what their needs are and what their, um, what their weaknesses might be. Um, so, yeah, starting with the positive is, I think, a very important thing. One uh, educator from Norway uh, told me that for her parent-teacher conferences, she asked the parents to bring in ten photos of their kids to begin, the, you know, the co- uh, conference. And she said to me, usually they don't bring in pictures, you know, of, of hey this is my child when they broke the plate glass window of the uh, neighbor playing baseball. Right. Right. They usually include ten positive pictures, you know, doing positive things, and right. so it gets the uh, conference on a positive note, uh, on a positive uh, stepping. So this is basically the way I approach IEP meetings.
1: And I know a lot of people bring pictures um, of their children because oftentimes the children aren't at the IEP meetings. And I think that you have to, you know, understand that when you're there, you're not talking about um, a diagnosis and you're not talking about a classification. I mean, you're talking about a child. So I could exactly. see how that could be very effective. And I know that yes. you, um, you know, have very strong opinions on inclusion.
0: Yes, um I- in the chapter that I wrote called uh, "Neurodiversity in the Classroom," I suggested that the real—if we, if we want to have neurodiversity in the classroom—we really need to have full inclusion, and, and I mean full inclusion. I don't mean you know, except for perhaps the child is going to be harmful to themselves or harmful to the environment, in which case they need a different kind of you know environment at least temporarily, uh, while they get themselves under control. But for most kids, you know, kids with Down syndrome, kids with uh, mood disorders, kids with ADHD, LD, they ought to be in an inclusive classroom. Um, I just had the, um, the pleasure of visiting uh, one of the schools that I wrote about in the, in the uh, book, the Patrick O'Hearn School, which is now called the William Henderson Inclusion School in Dorchester, Massachusetts and they were putting on their uh, spring play the day that I came, which was great because I got a chance to see how every child was included. 35% of the kids in the school have disability labels of one kind or another, Um, and yet in this play, everybody was involved, you know, and some kids um, needed uh, a person, a peer to help them um, move across the stage or, or do a particular activity. Um, but you found that many kids found their strengths uh, shining in an environment like this one. Whereas you know, hunched over a worksheet or a work, workbook, they might have had significant difficulty. But here, their their souls really um, uh, sang out, um, and it was really uh, they, they put on the, um, the play or the musical Annie, and it was just well well done and beautifully realized. And it was a, a for me a real affirmation of the fact that full inclusion does work. Um, and But it requires a lot of work in advance. It really took twenty years for um, the director of the school, William Henderson, to cultivate the kinds of alliances and the kinds of patterns of, of and climates of uh, teacher um, attitudes and uh, behaviors and teacher effectiveness um, to be able to get that kind of thing to happen. Uh, it, it can't be implemented overnight. Unfortunately, too many people see inclusion as you know, most of the kids are studying this activity and we let the slow ones work in the back. We keep them in the room so that means that they're included even though they're doing something totally different. That's sometimes called inclusion, which is laughable because it's, it's really not inclusion because even though you're including them in the room, you're excluding them from really the gist of what's going on in the classroom. And really it's
1: setting such a poor message for um, exactly. the other students because, I mean, you know, like you, you mentioned in the book, <clears throat> it's very isolating and stigmatizing right now, a lot of, I mean, not all, but most of the inclusion, um, you know, and to find that balance, I mean, that that school that you were just speaking of, I mean, I would love for them to, uh, you know, try to set up a model for other schools because, you know, inclusion can work if it's done right, but unfortunately it is not
0: done right, and no. that's
1: where a big problem is coming in.
0: I think for inclusion to work, one of the things I, I think is very important is for the teacher to see each new child that's coming in with a label as an asset to their class. In other, that's why I wrote this book, in a sense, um, because I wanted to make a case for the fact that each of these kids with each of these labels has something positive going on for them that they can contribute in a positive way to the classroom environment, and if the teacher Saw that and understood that they would accept inclusion. They would see inclusion would make their classroom stronger rather than more fragmented.
1: Right. You know, and I'm I'm sitting here. I'm reading um, some of the posts on. Um, the chat that's going on, and you know, people are just—it's really—it's it's, as I'm looking at—it's it, very sweet because I see parents on here saying, you know, I have—I see my kid has amazing qualities, and you know, it's like I think parents are really starting to see what you're saying, you know, and they're talking about, you know, the inclusion is great for sensitive children like autistics, and it boosts their confidence. Right. Um, you know, it, and inclusion is great. But, you know, unfortunately they're excluded from the group. So, you know, it's really, the parents really are, um, I think, loving what they're hearing here tonight because it's... Well, I
0: think parents more than anybody else understand the strengths of their child. Um, They may not value them. They may not see them as valuable in in relationship, let's say, to the school. Um, But I think that deep down every parent is, you know, the greatest advocate and expert for their child in terms of their positive qualities and hopefully this book will um be a kind of a stimulus to um to underscore that uh that fact.
1: You know, and I think also, you know, let's face it, the teachers, I mean even special education teachers, most of them are not trained say specifically for different disorders like autism or whatever. It's a very general broad um education that they get. So right. You know, I think sometimes too much pressure and responsibility is put on these teachers to be to to be expected to unravel. You know, the needs of this child. When I mean, as parents, we're doing it daily, and it's a constant work in progress so, you know, I think also it's, you know, difficult for the districts when they have so many children with so many different disabilities that, you know, you may go in there and be, you know, my child is gifted in art and my child is gifted in, you know, music, whatever. I mean, I'm fortunate that I, I am in a very good school district where they do listen. But, you know, I think that's something that really has to be brought, you know, through in these IEPs that, you know, maybe this kid needs an extra class of you know, music instead of, you know, another elective.
0: So, you know... And parents can can advocate for that, you know, in the IEP process. So, um, but I agree with you that teachers are under a lot of pressure to do a lot of different things these days. And I think that a a full inclusion classroom needs to be a classroom with a lot of adults in it um, in terms of parent volunteers, um, but you don't think uh, that's distracting to the children? I well, it depends what on that. what's going on. It depends on what's going on. But if you're creating an environments where kids are broken up into small groups or where kids are working on different things, mm-hmm. then it can be a real asset. If, they're, if the parents are just kind of hanging out there uh, observing everything, it can be a distraction. I agree. But they, if they're made an integral part of the teaching process um, and their gifts are brought to bear on the... Uh, activities in the classroom, then, uh, you know, it can be a really excellent uh, relationship.
1: Well, as I said, you know, I just, I loved this book, and um, for everyone listening, I mean, this really is a must-buy. There's so much information um, in this book, and you know, the other, we didn't get to all of the um, different um, disorders and issues like dyslexia, but um, I did want to just mention something that I wrote, that you wrote, that I thought was very touching, in regard to the rainbow of intelligence. Speaking of Down syndrome and Williams um, syndrome, and what you wrote is, it's not how smart you are, it's how you're smart, and I just thought that was beautiful because you know that really is the case for so many of these kids.
0: Right, exactly. Again, uh, with the intellectual disabilities, it's the IQ score that oftentimes has too much power in our culture. And thinking about the fact that there are different kinds of intelligences, um, like being, being smart with music, being smart with pictures and images, being smart with nature. Um, we can see that kids who have low IQ scores, in fact, show gifts in, in all of these areas and other areas as well.
1: Well Dr. Armstrong I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight and this was just a terrific session and I'm sure that a lot of people will be um very interested to read what you've what you have in this book and I hope that um the teachers and the school districts and everyone else as well pick up a copy because it really it really can make a huge change in the stigma that the children and adults are are living with and it could make their lives just so much easier if they can just look at the positive of the life that they have. So, I appreciate you writing the book and I appreciate you joining us tonight.
0: And I really want to thank you for having me on and for your wonderful comments. The book just came out yesterday was the official publication date and I couldn't have had a better launch than to uh, be speaking with you and have you, you know, saying such wonderful things about the book. Thank you. you- You've made my day.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And the book can be purchased, I would assume, on Amazon and Borders. I'm right, I assume you can get it. I have exactly. pre-ordered it on Amazon. Okay, terrific.
0: terrific. Yes, and in the bookstores.
1: Neuro, neurodiversity, everybody, by Dr. Thomas Armstrong. Thank you again for joining us. Thank I you very much, that, Marianne. I end the show the same way every day, which is You Are Your Child's Best Advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us at the Coffee Clatch, and thank you for Chuck Wally for moderating over at Tweet Chat. Have a great night, everyone.